Well, I'd invite you, if you have your Bibles with you, if you want to use your own copy of God's Word, to turn with me this morning uh, to the book of Ephesians once again. If you were listening in last week, if you were with us last week, you know that we found ourselves uh, here in this letter to the Apostle, or or letter by the Apostle Paul to the church at Ephesus. Uh, This may very well have been a Um, A circulating letter as well may have traveled to some other ancient cities, but it comes to us here in 2020 as, uh, as God's people, Jew and Gentile. And we focused last week on Jesus as our peace, on Jesus as the one who breaks down the walls that divide us. And in a world of division, uh, I think we needed to be here. We needed to be on that theme. We needed to remind ourselves as Christians, and you who are not Christians, who are not believers, who may have listened last week and may be listening again this week, that more than anything in our world, more than any policy change, more than any politician shift, we need the person of Jesus. And I decided that this week I wanted to spend a little more time on this idea, uh, on this concept of unity in a divided world. And, And we may actually linger a little bit longer here in this book of Ephesians in the next couple weeks. Because while last week we were encouraged of these these eternal realities, we didn't really talk much about, about the how, about what this actually looks like. Once, once we have Jesus, once, or, or, or maybe we should more accurately say, once Jesus has us and we have peace with God, and and the walls are broken down between us, then then what? How do we live? Well, we're not currently studying this book. This is often what we do at Ascension, is, is we walk through books of the Bible verse by verse. We're not doing that in this season. We're just jumping all around. Uh, but it's worth noting that in the book of Ephesians, and I know some of you know this, those of you who are familiar with the book, as we come to chapter four, which is where we are this morning, there is this transition in chapter four, verse one, where Paul moves from the gospel realities that he's expounded in the first three chapters, the fact that he chose us, God chose us, he predestined us, he adopted us, he redeemed us, he's forgiven us in Christ, he's made us his inheritance, he's given us an inheritance, a love inexhaustible, wide and high and deep and long. All of that stuff finds its culmination in the doxology that ends chapter three, and then he comes to the word, therefore, in chapter four, verse one, therefore, and the rest of Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus and to the church is where that love of God ought to take us. What difference the love of God for us in Christ ought to make in our church, in our families, in our thinking, in our marriages, in our speech, and so on and so on. God has acted. Now this is how we are to respond. And so today I'd like to focus on the church, on the response that Paul calls the church 
two. And so Ephesians chapter four, verses one through six is where we're gonna focus our hearts and our attention this morning. Listen as I read. I invite you to follow along on the screen in front of you. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. We live in a world of division. We talked about that last week, right? Well, unfortunately, we live also in a world more specifically of church division. Did you know that there are over 200, and I think that's a pretty conservative estimate, 200 Protestant denominations at present in our modern world. And that's in the United States alone. When you move it to other countries, that number goes into the thousands. And I know many of you listening didn't grow up Presbyterian. I I can think of several Presbyterian denominations just off the top of my head. We The PCA, which is our denomination, the ARP, the RCA, the EPC, the OPC, the PCUSA, the RPCNA, lots of letters, lots of denominations, lots of division. Well, believing what I do, what I think you do about the heart of man, I don't believe that denominations could have possibly been prevented. There's too much pride in our hearts. There's too much lack of of discernment. The further we get away from, from Jesus being present on earth and from the church being firmly united around his teaching. So while denominations and division couldn't be prevented in our world, I do think that they're worthy of lament. Their reality is a reminder for all of us to guard ourselves. I think the Lord can use our denominational differences to strengthen us as a people, to challenge us each in our denominations. But I do think they're worthy of lament. Now, Paul here in the book of Ephesians is not talking specifically about denominations. But he and the Holy Spirit who inspired him to write these words, he knows his own heart and he knows the heart of men. And he knows that divisions are coming. 
And while the wall that separated Jew and Gentile has been abolished, and we, we spoke about that, there's one people, new walls will be built. And the need for unity will be more pressing than ever. And Paul couldn't have even anticipated this age of, of social media and the proliferation of ideas and the way that we express them. But let me read for you again, people of God, Jesus' earnest prayer for us. I've alluded to this several times over the past weeks. From John 17, he says, the glory that you have given, I have given to them, Jesus prays to the Father, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. That the world may know this gospel unity in the church of Jesus is fundamental to our mission. And so I want to walk through these six verses of Ephesians chapter four, building on this idea of, of unity and looking a little more specifically about how we accomplish this as the church. Three truths this morning. We've got six verses and we're going to kind of jumble them up and, and look at them out of order. We're going to first look at verses four through six and the ground of our unity, then verse three and the call to our unity, and then where we'll spend most of our time this morning on verse two, the character of unity. So that's the three sections, but here are the truths that I want us to think about. Number one, our unity is built upon the triune God. Our unity is built upon the triune God. Let's, let's just begin briefly here with verses four through six with this unshakable, unbreakable, eternal reality of our God. And when Paul calls the church in Ephesians chapter four, verse one, to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, he's not saying that we need to earn our calling, that we need to earn our standing as sons and daughters. Hopefully you realize that. But he is saying that we need to strive to be an accurate reflection of the good news and the good God that has gripped us. Many people believe that Verses four through six specifically in this passage uh, were an old hymn or certainly an old Christian creed that would have been confessed. It's the sevenfold foundation of the unity of the church and at its center is the Trinity. I don't know if you noticed it, but if you have your Bibles, you can look there with me um, in verse four, excuse me, Verse six, first of all, we have one God and Father of all. God the Father who has adopted us as his sons and daughters. Then we have in verse five, one Lord. This is clearly speaking about Jesus, the Lord Jesus, the one who shares our experience, the one who shares our baptism, the one who shares our flesh. And then working back to verse three, or even verse four, mention both places, the spirit. The spirit who creates and sustains the body. This eternal 
communal and giving existence of the Trinity, the three persons of the Trinity, overflows its banks to the people of God, to the body of Christ, to the church, who are called to the same hope, who are called by faith alone, baptized into this triune name. We could, we could press into this for quite a long time, but for now I just simply want us to recognize that this is the theological undergirding of our unity, of our identity, And I want the Trinity and the beauty of the Trinity to stir our hearts to want to experience and reflect that perfect love and unity and community. That's that's the ground of our unity. But we also need to hear the call real briefly. And that's our second truth. Our unity is built upon the triune God. And number two, our unity must be maintained. Our unity must be maintained. Now that word maintenance, ooh, that has some, that has some pains to us. I've got this laurel hedge in the front of my house, in my front yard, and it is, it's my nemesis, seven feet tall, five feet wide, 120 feet long, and it just doesn't stop growing. My wife loves it, but I secretly hope it will die so that I don't have to deal with it anymore. I wish I had gospel love to maintain this thing, but I, but I don't. But maintaining the unity of the church, staying on top of that, flows from God himself. It flows from his son and the gospel of his son. That's that's the phrase that we see here, eager to maintain, eager to maintain in verse three. One could also say being diligent to keep. That word for diligent that's used there is a word that's closely related to zeal. So we could say, let's, let's be fanatics about maintaining the unity of the body of Christ. A couple things to note about the fact that our unity must be maintained. First of all, notice it doesn't need to be accomplished That's already happened through the work of Christ. That's already happened by the power of his Holy Spirit. We just need to walk in the unity that as we looked at last week that Jesus has made between Jew and Gentile, between all peoples. But second, we must reckon with the reality that this unity, and here's where we get to that word maintenance, isn't a one and done kind of deal. Yes, it's accomplished, it's always there, but the practice of it, the living of it, takes work. Because of our hearts, as we confessed already, we're in this stream that we're gonna have to constantly paddle upstream. We're gonna have to constantly paddle against the current until the Lord Jesus comes. Unity is something that must, with eagerness, be worked for and maintained. But that need not be overly discouraging because the Spirit is with us. The bond of peace is with us. Creating, I hope, 
in us, what I want to spend the remainder of our time together on this morning, the slow walk. And here we come to the the character of our unity. We've talked about the ground, talked about the call. The ground is the Trinity. The call is eagerness to maintain. And now the character. And here's how I want to sum up Paul's words with our third point. Our unity is a slow walk. Our unity is a slow walk. In a world that prides itself on speed and efficiency, on timely solutions to big problems, unity is not a quick fix. And here we come to the mouthful and lifeful, we might say, that is, that is verse two. Let me just read it again. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Five foundation stones for an intentional pursuit of unity as God's people that exude, in my opinion, slowness. There certainly is urgency in these things, but it's not the kind of urgency that requires speed. It's the kind of urgency that requires slowness to speak, slowness to act. Let's unpack it a little bit. It begins with humility and gentleness. We've talked recently as we looked at 1 Peter earlier in the year that humility was not a trait that was valued in the Greco-Roman world. It was thought to be weakness. Nor was gentleness something that was valued. And of course, we see this to some degree in our world as well, where loud bravado is often praised and where prideful arrogance is, is recouched, is recategorized as confidence. But with Jesus... With the person of Jesus, everything changed because no one was ever stronger than he and yet no one was ever more gentle. No one was ever more important than he and yet no one was ever more humble. And that one time, and I I said this to you, Ascension, I think weeks ago in, in one of the Wednesday words that I gave as I read some of this book that I had been reading, of all the accounts, the four gospel accounts that we have, and of all the words of Jesus that we have recorded, there's only once where Jesus describes himself, his very heart, the core of who he is and what he's about. He says in Matthew eleven twenty nine, I am gentle and lowly in heart. And here's how one author, that book that I quoted to you, I think weeks ago, describes that statement. Meek, humble, gentle. Jesus is not trigger happy. He's not harsh, reactionary, easily exasperated. He is the most understanding person in the universe. 
The posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but open arms. Of course, this is the one who Paul describes in the book of Philippians as making himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, humbling himself to the point of by humbling himself, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And if we're honest, it's, it's pride that is behind the curtain of all the disunity that we experience in the body of Christ. And yet grounded in who we are in Jesus and by the power of his spirit, if if we could not assert our rights but defer our rights to our brother or sister in Christ first, that, that is humility. And that is the beginnings of a slow walk. I picked up a book recently that I've been working my way through It's a book entitled Finding the Right Hills to Die On. And I think it's timely for our context and for our cultural moment in the church. And it it stresses this concept known as, as theological triage. It's a concept that we could tie to other things, whether it be political triage or ideological triage or philosophical triage. Of course, those of you who are in the medical community and even those of you who aren't probably know that triage is, is that medical process of assessing what is a priority, what really needs to be dealt with now. If we could use Paul's terminology that, that I've said a couple of times, what is of first importance? Those are the things we need to go toe-to-toe about. Those are the things we need to hash through And in dealing with one another and our differences, we have to make these same assessments. And of course, a reactionary walk always believes that your opinion is correct and that the issue that you are dealing with is most definitely worth going to the mat over. But a slow walk is different. A slow walk is slow. It's deliberate, it's humble, it's gentle, it's careful that love for theology or love for ideology never exceeds love for people. That book I mentioned about finding the right hills to die on, it tells the story of the well-known Baptist minister Charles Spurgeon 19th century Baptist preacher and Charles Spurgeon preached a sermon on the unity of Christ. It was actually from John chapter 17, Jesus' words where he prays for unity for his people. And in this sermon, he speaks of his love for George Herbert, the poet, 17th century priest in the Church of England. And it's kind of comical what Spurgeon says in his sermon. He says this, I want to quote him. He says, where the spirit of God is, there must be love. 
And if I have once known and recognized any man to be my brother in Christ Jesus, the love of Christ constraineth me no more to think of him as a stranger or foreigner, but a fellow citizen with the saints. Now, George Herbert lived, you know, a century before, uh, a century plus before Spurgeon, but he's reading George Herbert. And he says this, now I hate high churchism as my soul hates Satan. But I love George Herbert, although George Herbert is a desperately high churchman. I hate his high churchism, but I love George Herbert from my very soul. And I have a warm corner in my heart for every man who is like him. I will defy you if you have any love to Jesus Christ to pick or choose among his people. If I come across a man in whom there is the spirit of Christ, I must love him. That's a great phrase, a warm corner in my heart. Is that how you would characterize your feelings towards Christians that you disagree with? Towards believers who don't see eye to eye on every issue with you, but know and love the Lord Jesus. And, and I can hear what some of you might say, what your response might be, because it's It can be my response too at times. They should know better. They should be further along. They they need more discernment. And the fact of the matter is you may be right. You probably are right. But we're all works in progress. And this isn't a sprint. And so be humble. Be gentle. And that brings us to the final two descriptors, patience and bearing with one another in love. When we talked about this earlier this year, I believe in 1 Peter, as Peter calls the church in 1 Peter 3 to much the same, I think we couched it there, I couched it there as loving one another like family. And I know for some of us, it's ugh, really? Like family? Yeah, sometimes it's not easy to do. But you don't write off family. At least you you strive not to write off family. Bear with one another in love. You see, following the example of Jesus through the power of his indwelling spirit, the eagerness for unity compels us to be long in suffering, slow in suspicion, void of contempt for one another, rich in gentleness, and low in pride. Brothers and sisters, we live in a world of outrage and we feel that temptation in our own hearts as well, but ours is not an angry gospel. It's not a gospel that ought to be defined by what it opposes. 
And that doesn't mean it's sappy. That doesn't mean we're never righteously outraged as his people. But what it does mean is that through a slow and deliberate walk, resulting in love and unity in the body, we show the world what kind of God we serve. A God of of principled truth, yes, but also a God of gentle grace. There's a lot of debating going on these days. I've heard some of it. I've read some of it. May God give us the grace to walk slowly for the sake of unity, for the sake of his great name. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning once again for the truth of your word, for the encouragement and challenge to simply slow down in humility and in gentleness and in patience and in long-suffering to reflect the character of our Lord Jesus, to foster the unity of you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And to proclaim to the world that the world might know that this is the one. This is the one. This Jesus is the one whom you sent. Oh, Father, give us the grace. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.